Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 17, Further Elements in Follow-Up Sessions. Well, thank you for joining me here on Leading From Behind, and I apologize for the delay in posting the program this week. This episode will mark the conclusion of our initial look at follow-up sessions in solution-focused therapy. This time, we'll examine some of the other common elements that would be found in a solution-focused conversation after the first or any subsequent session. Now, in the resource segment of this episode, I'll provide some information about a recently announced solution-focused therapy conference to take place in early 2014. I'll also talk about the availability of the first edition of a new online journal devoted solely to solution-focused practice. So, welcome to the program. I hope you'll find it useful in your understanding of solution-focused practice. So far, in our examination of follow-up sessions, we've looked at the conversation that often ensues as we uncover what's been better in the client's life since the first or previous session. We've also examined the use of coping questions, locating exceptions, and uncovering the client's learning when setbacks have occurred or when circumstances are identified as unchanged. Now, in this episode, we'll take a look at scaling questions, asking about next small signs of change, and end-of-session feedback in follow-up sessions. Now, to some degree, we'll cover some of the same ground as in our previous look at these elements of solution-focused practice, but I'll also identify some of the differences that might arise when these elements are used in follow-up sessions. So, I'll begin with the use of scaling questions. Now, it's important to note that scaling questions might be used at any time during a follow-up session. This will depend largely, of course, on your own curiosity during a conversation or when your clinical judgment simply tells you that a scaling question might be useful at a particular time. Some solution-focused therapists, for example, might even ask a scaling question right at the beginning of a follow-up session as a means of learning about what's better since the previous conversation. Generally, though, we often use a scaling question after hearing about the client's progress since the previous session. This allows us to understand where the client now sees himself in relation to his preferred future or best hope arising from the work together. Now, in follow-up sessions, scaling questions relating to progress are useful in a number of ways. First, the client's response can tell us something about his perception of the magnitude of change since the previous session. The response can also inform us about how close the client sees himself in relation to his preferred future, giving us some food for thought about whether a further session is desired or perhaps even necessary. And finally, like in the first session, the scaling question gives us a platform for asking about the next small sign of change. Now, in our ongoing case example with our client Rachel, we've heard in previous episodes about a number of improvements she has achieved since the first session. So here is how I might ask a scaling question about progress in the follow-up session. So, Rachel, on our scale of 1 to 10, where 10 means that you're back to where you want to be from a well-being perspective, and 1 is the opposite, where would you be today? I guess I would say that I'm probably around an 8. I mean, some days are better than others, but most days are pretty good. 
Now again, note the anchors used for the scale in this question. 10 is representing her best hope from the conversation in the first session, while 1 is simply referred to as the opposite. Now, Rachel's response to the question puts her at an 8 on the scale, which one can only assume is pretty good. But it also offers me an opportunity to be curious about something else. How confident is she that she can continue to do the things that are helping her to be at an 8? And so, a scaling question can be a useful way of finding out. And so, Rachel, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is that you're very confident that you can keep at this 8, and 1 is the opposite, where would you be? I would say that I'm pretty high. Uh, Probably a 9. So Rachel's reply clearly indicates a high degree of confidence that she can keep doing the things that are helpful to her. But to amplify her response, it can be useful to follow up with a question that seeks some detail about how she has come to this conclusion. Once again, the intent here is to simply invite her to hear the sound of her own voice in talking about her own confidence. And what is it that has your confidence at nine? Well, I just feel like I'm more in control of myself now. I've got some of my routines going, so I know the longer I do that, the better it is for me. Now, in follow-up sessions, it's also possible that scaling questions might also be employed to understand where the client might see herself in relation to a particular aspect of her circumstances. So, for example, in Rachel's case, she has talked about how her work situation remains as a source of frustration in her life. So it's possible then that I might ask a scaling question specifically about that issue, if, of course, it seemed reasonable to do so. In this instance, I might ask a scaling question relating to how she's coping or managing with that particular issue. So I might say, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is you're managing this difficult situation at work in the best or healthiest way possible, and 1 is the opposite, where would you be today? And of course, I would follow up her response by asking for her ideas about what's helping her to be at whatever number she might choose. So I might say something like, so how come it's a five and not lower? Or what are you doing right now that's helping it to be a six and not lower? Again, this allows Rachel to reflect on her own expertise and efforts that are helping in some way with her work situation. Now, in our previous episode, Rachel mentioned during the follow-up session that finding a new job is not something she wants to do at this time as a way of resolving her difficulties in her current job, even though her partner has suggested that this might be a good idea. Now, again, depending on one's clinical judgment and the nature of the conversation, it could even be useful to ask a scaling question about her position on this particular decision. So, for example, I might ask, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is you're fully committed to remaining at this job despite the current circumstances, and 1 means that you're fully committed to looking elsewhere for a new job, where would you be today? Again, this type of scaling question can be a useful one for clients who might be wrestling with a decision about a difficult circumstance. It's a way of allowing the client to position herself around the decision and as a way of implicitly underlining her own knowledge, expertise, or experience. Finally, this particular scaling question can lead to further follow-up questions about the client's ideas about signs of moving one way or the other toward a more firmer decision. So in Rachel's case, I could ask either, so what might need to happen in order for you to be more committed to staying? Or conversely, how will you know or what will you notice that tells you you're moving closer to a decision to leave. 
So as mentioned, outside of scaling questions focused on progress during follow-up sessions, there is also room for asking other scaling questions pertaining to the client circumstances. As noted, these could be focused on confidence in maintaining progress, how clients see themselves in coping with circumstances outside their immediate control, or as stated a few moments ago, inviting clients to position themselves around important decisions. Now, another important element in follow-up sessions is once again asking about next small signs of change. This question generally appears at some point following a scaling question about progress and can even be linked to the scaling question itself. Typically, then, the question here might simply be, so what might be the next small sign of progress? Or when linked to the scaling question, what might be the next small sign that you're moving up on this scale even a little bit? Again, as we discussed in our previous look at this element of solution-focused practice, the key here is to reference a small sign rather than a step that the client must or have to do. Now, depending on the content of the conversation in a follow-up session, it's also possible that we might also ask about small signs of change related to a particular issue or aspect of the client's circumstances, rather than just a sign of change toward an overall preferred future or outcome. Now, in Rachel's case, if the conversation was moving increasingly towards her work situation, it might be relevant to ask, so what might be the next small sign that things are better for you at work? Or what might be the next small sign that you're managing the situation at work even a little better? Now, of course, there can also be times when asking about a next small sign of change is not warranted. So, for example, Rachel's 8 on the scale, as indicated earlier, might lead me to decide that it simply isn't necessary to ask about a further concrete sign of change. This is because clients will sometimes identify that the number that they're at is simply good enough at this point. In fact, sometimes we can simply ask, is 8 good enough? And in stating their agreement, clients might rightfully say that 10 represents an ideal that just isn't possible within the ups and downs of day-to-day life. Alternatively, we could also proceed with asking about a next small sign of change, but at the same time acknowledge that 8 is indeed good. So in my conversation with Rachel, I might ask about the next small sign of change in this way. And so, Rachel, I I know that 8 is pretty good, but what do you think might be the next small sign that perhaps you're moving up on that scale to maybe an 8.5 or even a 9? Well, I'd like to say that something would be better at work, but I don't see that happening right now. So is there something else that you might notice that would tell you that you've moved up on the scale even just a little? Well, I guess it would have to be if I can just keep doing what I'm doing right now. You know, just keep it going. So continuing with the things that you're doing now, your fitness activities, connecting with others, you and Alex being on the same page, that that might be the next sign to you? Yeah, I think that certainly would be a good thing. Now, the end-of-session message is the final element of follow-up sessions for us to examine in this episode. And it's important to note, once again, that this feedback to our clients is just as critical in follow-up sessions as it is in first sessions in solution-focused practice. Again, the message, or feedback, allows us to make some definitive statements and observations that we wouldn't necessarily make during the conversation itself. Now, as mentioned in previous episodes, solution-focused practitioners may vary in how they describe the content of the end-of-session feedback. So our description here is simply based on our own experience and practice. 
In short, in considering the conversation in the session, we want to develop feedback for the client that's composed of the following. Some direct compliments about the client's efforts or ideas, some validation or normalizing of the client's continued struggles or difficulties, a restatement of what stands out as important to the client, and finally, some kind of encouragement or mention of what's next. In some cases, this might be framed as a between-session task and or as an invitation to return. Now, in follow-up sessions, our compliments are generally focused on client efforts that have resulted in change, their hard work in coping or managing with continued challenges, or perhaps on some of their good ideas or learning as a consequence of setbacks. So, in Rachel's case, it would be relatively easy to provide some direct compliments about her obvious hard work in becoming more physically active, reclaiming some of her healthy routines, and, of course, her part of the efforts made to strengthen her relationship with her partner and their decisions about trying to start a family. At the same time, we might also choose to offer compliments relating to her efforts to cope with a continuing difficult situation at work. Or perhaps her wisdom in choosing to focus on other aspects of her well-being rather than allowing the work situation to get the best of her. Now, as far as validation is concerned, there would certainly be some rich opportunities to validate or normalize Rachel's frustration with her work situation. Even though this situation continues to be a difficult one for her, it would be important to underline how it's understandable that she would be frustrated and how this would likely be the case for anyone in her shoes. Finally, we would want to restate that it seems important for her to simply continue to focus on doing the kinds of things that she knows are useful in recovering her sense of well-being. I would definitely want to highlight that she knows these activities are useful to her in so many different ways. More important, I would want to underline her knowledge that these efforts are also very useful to her as she continues to cope with her work situation. Now, as mentioned, we would also include in the message something about what's next. In Rachel's case, given that she sees herself as being increasingly close to her best hopes, I would simply want to encourage her to keep doing what's working and continue to notice the difference this makes. Once again, I would likely offer a soft invitation to return at some point, if she felt it would be necessary. So, in closing our discussion of follow-up sessions, it's important to mention once again that there are many variations in how our conversations might unfold, depending on the client's progress and circumstances since the previous session. And, of course, it's also possible that as the solution-focused practitioner, we can find ourselves being uncertain about what's important to the client and what's wanted from the therapeutic conversation during follow-up sessions. In those instances, it can be very helpful to refocus our conversation with the client by, once again, asking about the client's best hope from the work together. Quite often, the response here will allow us to have more confidence about where to proceed in the conversation in a way that is most helpful to the client. In the resource section of today's episode, we have two bits of news that might be of interest to solution-focused practitioners. The first concerns the announcement of a Solution-Focused Expo, a conference to be held in Orlando, Florida in February 2014. The conference is being organized by Linda Metcalf and Elliot Connie, two experienced practitioners, trainers, and authors who we've mentioned in the resource segment of the podcast in the past. 
They're very hopeful that the Solution-Focused Expo will be an annual event, so we certainly want to encourage new practitioners to give this event some consideration as part of their professional development and learning in solution-focused practice. Now, to learn more about the Solution-Focused Expo, you can go to thesolutionfocusedexpo.com. Now, our second bit of news concerns the International Journal of Solution-Focused Practices, a free online publication that has just released its very first issue, and I have to say that it's quite an impressive start. Now, you can access the journal at ijsfp.com. The journal is devoted to solution-focused practice in its many applications. New editions are planned on a twice-yearly basis. So, both the newly announced Solution-Focused Expo and the first edition of the International Journal of Solution-Focused Practices are certainly welcome additions to a growing landscape of opportunities to learn more about the approach as it's used in different contexts. So, we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining me. In our next episode, number 18, we'll be looking at ways of developing your skills in solution-focused practice through the use of consulting teams, recorded sessions, and peer supervision. Now, if you have comments or questions about this episode or the podcast in general, please feel free to do so on the podcast page of the Halifax Brief Therapy Center website at hbtc.ca, or you can send an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. As well, if you'd like us to mention a website, book, or upcoming training opportunity in your area relating to solution-focused practice, please let us know, and we'll be happy to report it in the resource section of the podcast. Again, the Leading From Behind podcast is generally available on or about the 1st and 15th of each month on our website. You can also subscribe to the podcast for free through iTunes. To do so, simply follow the link on the podcast page at hbtc.ca, or look for us in the iTunes store in the training subsection of the education category. Finally, I'd like to extend my appreciation once again to my colleague Debbie Van Horn for her valuable assistance with our ongoing case example. As usual, thanks as well to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, a solution-focused therapy podcast, episode number 17. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I certainly hope you'll join us again. <laughs>